This is Jerome and Kevin present a show where we discuss various uh, short-term television shows. On each episode, we will discuss one season of a TV show. Tonight, we discuss the first season of ISD's Brockmire. My name is Jerome Cuson. I am one of the co-hosts. You can follow me on Twitter at JeromeC1985. I have seen all four seasons of this show one time. We are part of the Real World Podcasting Network, a network that includes Pantheon Plus, there will be movies, Flipping the Pig, and in the archives, amongst them, Real Bad, Mars Investigated, from Broadcast Depth. Uh, Please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platforms. That includes Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher, so as to help people discover the great work that we are doing here and that Matt and Ben are doing as well. My co-host is Kevin Ford. You can follow him on Twitter at KFord13. As of this point, he has only seen the first season of Brockmire. And Kevin, uh, we're somewhat keeping with the theme of, uh, of this year, with you watching another show that I've already seen. Uh, we are also keeping up with the Simpsons theme because, of course, the star of this show is uh, Hank Azaria, who has done many, many voices on The Simpsons. And uh, this is kind of a nice, this is kind of a nice, easy project. Four seasons, eight episodes apiece, all those episodes, about 22 minutes. So we thought going into the fall when, when Kevin and I are a little busier, this is the perfect show for us to be watching, reviewing, and I hope enjoying. Kevin, how, what did you think of the first season of Brockmire overall? This was, I, I didn't really have any expectations for the show. It was definitely different than I expected because I, I guess I didn't necessarily expect it to be a period piece, but the the plot itself, I didn't really know much about, but this was really great. It was so, it was very funny. And what I liked about it most is there's a lot of subversion of your usual tropes, which we'll talk about. So a lot of the stuff where you felt like, okay, here's your typical sitcom situation they don't go that way and it's not necessarily a swerve but they just handle it much better and it feels very it feels like a very real show like it it uh, like and I, like it's hard to explain but it just feels like you're you're all watching real people in real life and then they take some some very surreal twists on that like uh i remember like especially the very end of season 7 i was like this feels like an episode of atlanta i'm watching because that's that's kind of what that show is, is a lot of like real life stuff. And they'll put in a very surreal thing to put a twist on that. So this was great. Super easy to watch. I parsed it out to try to watch two episodes a day just to not overload myself. But could I, but I really could have easily done it in one or two sittings if I wanted to. All right. So this is also an interesting show for a number of reasons, because uh, Kevin and I have two very different relationships with with sports in that. I am somebody who watches a lot of baseball, a lot of football, a lot of basketball, some hockey, and Kevin really does not watch a lot of sports and is actively hated. He actively hates football. I don't think his hatred is as active as some of the other sports, but Kevin definitely is not a football person. But Kevin, I did want to discuss uh, kind of our backgrounds with baseball, however they exist. So what is your background just watching and enjoying or not enjoying professional baseball. So I actually played softball for a season as a kid, or I'm sorry, I played T-ball as a season for a kid. Uh, I was the Blue Jays. Um, 
And I enjoyed that. And at the time, because of that, I watched a little bit of baseball, but not really. But being from the Washington, D.C. era and as a 90s kid, I was an Orioles fan. And this is also the time that it was. And I remember very specifically, this is still the Cal Ripken days. Uh, Brady Anderson, Rafael Palmiero, Roberto Alomar, and Mike Mussina. Those were like the big five names I remember as a kid being like this crazy good Orioles team. And I very much remember like the Roberto Alomar spitting at the umpire thing being a really big story at the time. So that's who I was a fan of. If I were a fan of any team today, it would still be them. Although like it's one of those situations where I don't really watch either team, but like I hope the Orioles do well and I hope the Nationals do well just because they're now the team that's local. I know the Orioles are like the total pits now or whatever, but I also am a believer of just, you know, sticking by your team. And I have been to a couple games at Camden Yards, which I love as a ballpark. I've been to National Stadium a few times. I actually don't think I've ever seen a Nationals game there, but I've been there for a few concerts. And it's a nice stadium, but it feels very much like a newer corporate stadium. It doesn't have that ballpark feel like uh, like a Camden Yards did. Or you and I got to go to a Cubs game at Wrigley Field in 2013, and that very much has that old uh, ballpark aesthetic. So if there's any sport I like going to best, I think it's baseball for many reasons. I think ballparks are beautiful. The weather's usually good because of the time of year it takes place. And uh, in general, compared to especially like football or things like that, the fans are generally pretty well behaved. Um, so that's sort of my relationship with baseball. Also, as a kid, I collected baseball cards like crazy. So a lot of my knowledge from like that level of baseball players and stuff came from that era too. Like, uh, like I remember at the time, like Ken Griffey Jr. and Randy Johnson, the Mariners are big. Frank Thomas on the White Sox, Mo Vaughn on the Red Sox. Like those in my mind were like the huge players at the time and like getting their cards and stuff was like a really big deal. So but today I don't watch too much. Occasionally, my my fiance's parents are from the Pittsburgh area, so they're Pirates fans, which is very unfortunate. I actually remember last year they were here for a weekend and I and I was uh, watching a game with her mom in our living room and like the game, the score was zero zero. I turn away and I look back and it's oh to five against the Pirates. I'm like, what happened? How did this how did this take place? So if I know anything more about any teams the most, it's Pirates just because of that relationship. And I just know they're terrible. So which that's is my funny general... because the Pittsburgh Pirates are, are mentioned a little bit in the series. And we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. So yeah. my relationship oh, with baseball. Well, well, and also the, the Pirates uh, ballpark is extremely nice. I think is that Heinz Field or is that the football field? Hi, that is uh, that is the Pittsburgh Steelers. I believe it's okay. PNC Park. Yes, you're right. No. PNC is the is the Pirates one. That is a really beautiful ballpark. It's got a it's got a gorgeous view of uh, the downtown area. So yeah, um, I think that's that's those are the best new stadiums. This is the one where you can see the the background of the city. I think Camden Yards has that to an extent. Uh, so I grew up in Chicago, which is a haven uh, for baseball. There are two baseball teams. Whenever I tell people I'm from Chicago, they naturally assume that I'm a Cubs fan, and that could not be farther from the truth. I am, in fact, a, uh, a Chicago White Sox fan. So when I had to take Kevin to Wrigley Field, uh, Kevin probably noticed the scowl on, on, on my face as we as we were in Wrigley Field the whole time. Uh, but I I am a huge baseball fan. I don't think I'm as big of a baseball fan as I used to be, but I do still watch a lot of games especially if the White Sox are good. The White Sox are good right now. So I'm watching a lot more baseball last year and this year than I have in the past. And uh, they, they have always, they've always been my team. Um, my father grew up 
uh, blocks away from the old Comiskey Park that was on the south side of Chicago. And hopefully at some point I will get to return to uh, what is now, it is called Guaranteed Rate Field, but most people just call it Comiskey. Uh, so that is, uh, that's my relationship with baseball. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, it is, it is definitely an important uh, part of my life as a sports fan. And, um, you know, I, Kevin, I once vowed that if the Cubs ever won the World Series, that I would not be in the country. And I think I said it as a joke, but Kevin, as it turns out, when the Cubs won the World Series, I was in China. So I lived up to my stipulation. And that, so that was 2016 when that happened? It, uh, it was uh, days before the presidential election of 2016, yes. My goodness. So big, uh, big, <laughs> big week or so for Chicago in that time period. Uh, it was, and I was, uh, I was not there for any of it, and I'm kind of glad because I did not, I did not need that in my life. Yeah, I believe that. Uh, so I think that one of the things that makes baseball different from some of the other sports is the relationship that people have to their team, and even the relationship that people have with the people who call the games. And it, it might be a, a strange thing to think about, but especially because baseball has been around for so long, baseball was quote-unquote invented in the mid-1800s. Organized leagues started coming around in the 1880s. It is the basically the oldest professional sport. The NBA is relatively young. It's only about 75 years old. The NFL just celebrated their 100th anniversary. The NHL is just over 100 years old. But Major League Baseball, their roots go back to the 1880s. So there is a very long history there. And there is a relationship that exists with the announcers. For example, if you go to certain cities, announcers like Vin Scully for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Harry Carey for the Chicago Cubs, these are names, they are just as famous, and sometimes, in a lot of cases, even more beloved than the players, the coaches, the general managers of those teams. They are the institutions uh, for those cities. And that is essentially a lot of what Brockmeyer is either parodying honoring they they are honoring this idea of the announcer um as kind of kind of the voice of baseball and i think that that is a relationship that is that is definitely something that you could make a tv show about and what this show certainly does is it certainly uh, puts some twists and a lot of humor into those things but I think what you get from this show is you really get a, a good sense of just how important an announcer is to baseball, especially on radio. I think if you if you listen to sports on radio, it generally is it's tough because you can't see anything. But with baseball, because of the nature of the game, that it is slowed down, that there isn't as much action as there is in football and basketball, that baseball in the on the radio is much more of an institution than in any other sport. And I could be I could be speaking like misremembering or whatever, but I believe my grandma, who's passed on my mom's side, she was a Mets fan growing up. And when she would watch games on TV, she would have it muted and listen to the radio. And I think that's because either she grew up on the radio or the radio announcer when she was a fan was still doing it on the radio for for the team. Um, or there may be instances where like the television broadcaster eventually becomes the radio broadcaster and people who grew up on that person want to continue hearing that voice. So they'll listen to the radio while watching the game. 
if they're if they're not listening to it on the radio, just on their own, wherever, you know, in their car or wherever else they're listening to the radio. So I can't think of many other things in life where that would be the case, where people would go out of their way to try to tune into their radio to listen to something else different from what's being presented on the television just because of that relationship. And, you know, I don't have that with any announcer specifically in sports or otherwise, but I, I do find that very fascinating. So even like I kind of understood like, yeah, that all that makes sense to me is having that the voice of your childhood or just when you're when you got to be a fandom. And if you can continue listening to that as long as you can, because, you know, these people aren't going to be around forever. Um, it just makes it more enjoyable or, or a, a, just an overall better experience or a preference, even in some cases. I mean, Vince Scully was was so good at what he did that he was doing a simulcast. He was doing both the radio and TV by himself with no other. There was no color commentator. He was literally just calling games by himself. That's, well, and that's that and that and they make a big deal out of that with Brockmire in one point where he becomes the sole broadcaster for the Kansas City team. It's like this honor of how few people in the history of the sport were given that responsibility to be a solo broadcaster. And it sounds impossible to do, to fill that time, to be entertaining, to just keep your voice up for that long for so many games, especially with how many baseball games are played in a season. Um, But obviously it's treated as this distinction, this honor, this thing that doesn't happen to be a sole call for it. So yeah, for him to, to have that distinction has to be a, a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, you and I have done announcing on a very minor, 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 minor scale, and I can't imagine trying to do it by myself. It would it would just be impossible. No, I mean, there's there's so much about one resting your voice, getting a chance to, you know, take a sip of water or whatever while the other person talks, but also just having someone to play off of naturally makes it easier to talk through something no matter what it is. But yeah, I mean, you know, that that's why like in in wrestling terms, like, you know, people can say what they want about the quality of Joey Styles or whatever, but the fact that he was the solo broadcaster for ECW's television program for years and years and years, you know, is is a really impressive feat when you go back and listen to it, just to 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 have that responsibility on your shoulders as the sole voice of this product to try to sell it, sell tickets, sell pay-per-views, whatever, um, is is fascinating and just doesn't happen anymore. And so for and 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 most sports broadcast teams from the little I see on television and stuff have expanded. Like you you it, it seems like it's rare to even just get like a two person, a lot of three person booths maybe. Am I am I out of turn saying? Yeah, that? I mean there are some there are some three person booths, and I generally think they they have the, it works a little bit better in baseball just because again there isn't as much action going on as there is in other sports, but. Three-person announced teams can be very obnoxious because there's a lot of talking over uh, people. Uh, you know, the New York Mets, I know a lot of people love that broadcast crew, and I think they make it work because they've just been around each other for so long and they're so good at it. But for the most part, I, I would much prefer to have two people. So it, it, today in baseball, how many one-man booths are there? I, I honestly don't think there are any at this point now. Wow. Now that Vince Scully has retired – I believe unless I, I mean, maybe on the radio, there are one person's, but for the most part, you have at least two people calling games on the radio and for the TV broadcasts. Yeah, that that makes that that makes sense. I could see that being the case. I, I wonder if it's just a general preference or even, the, you know, I don't know how often they're showing the announcers on television or anything, but just showing a two man booth as opposed to just like one person looking into the camera and talking to you might be more 
pleasing to viewers too. I don't know. Yes. Uh, let's get into some background on the Brockmeyer character. So originally, Kim Brockmeyer was conceived in 2010 uh, when Hank Azaria debuted the character in a Funny or Die web series entitled Game Changers. And he was a, a part of a specific episode co- entitled A Legend in the Booth. He, boys, he has based the character's voice and broadcasting style on Bob Murphy, who may have been the announcer that your grandmother was listening to because Bob Murphy was an announcer for the New York Mets from 1964 until 2003. So that might be who you were talking about. And Phil Rizzuto, who is a legendary player and broadcaster uh, for the New York Yankees. He reprised the role of Jim Brockmeyer in 2012 on the NFL Network's The Rich Eisen podcast to discuss the National Football League. But for the most part, he has been in baseball. Uh, there was a, there was a legal dispute that I'm not going to get into, but needless to say, Hank Azaria won the right to play the Brockmeyer character. In 2016, the IFC Network commissioned a series based on Brockmeyer. The show is written. Uh, it was created by Joel Church Cooper. The first season was completely directed uh, by Tim Kirkby. Uh, so that is a little bit of background on the Brockmeyer character. So he is very clearly based on some specific people. Uh, before we get into uh, kind of the, the the actual show, any thoughts on uh, Brockmeyer's background? Well, two things. One, is it bad that I only know Phil Rizzuto because of Billy Madison? I mean, you could know. I mean, at least it's a good Adam Sandler movie. True. And two, that explains then why at the end of the episode they have the funnier dialogue as part of like the producers and stuff. I had no idea that that character was a part of a funnier die sketcher, any of that stuff before watching the show. So I was like, really funnier die got into television. How did I miss this? And now that all makes sense. Well, it's interesting because this is a, this is another occasion of a character starting off on one platform in this case, Brockmeyer um, and moving into having his own TV show. I mean, something similar has happened with the Ted Lasso character. He was originally a part of uh, of NBC promotions, and now he has his own TV show. And Ted Lasso is arguably one of the more popular shows uh, that is airing now. So uh, there's that. But I, we're not going to do an episode by episode rundown. I just kind of want to get into some general things. And Kevin has mentioned some of the tropes that he he wants to get into. I do want to talk about just the opening scene, and this might be one of the best opening scenes of a TV show uh, that I've ever seen because it just so clearly establishes the tone of the show. It is an incredible kind of solo performance by Hank Azaria. Uh, we start off basically with Jim Brockmeyer drinking hard liquor in the booth and talking about his wife being involved in an orgy. That's literally how the show begins. And just the way the camera is very close up on his face and he's basically having a nervous breakdown while on the air and getting into very graphic detail about what was going on with his wife. And just basically this is the worst moment of his life in the year 2007. And at this point, YouTube and online videos were relatively new. So in in the within the context of this show, Brockmeyer is one of the very first viral videos uh, that has ever existed. So before we get, before we get into kind of the plot, I just wanted to specifically talk about this opening scene just because 
I think it does a tremendous job of grabbing your attention right away. It's kind of funny, but it's also tragic in so many ways. And yeah, Hank Azaria immediately establishing himself as a, as kind of an acting force in this show. It is a really good way to set the tone and it's a good gut checkpoint because it is a bit surprising. It takes you off a little bit off to see a hard drinking radio announcer break down and talk about his wife having an orgy and catching her doing it in, in graphic detail, describing what she's doing. So it's, it's basically telling the viewer, like if for some reason, any of the, if you find this funny, like you're in, you, you've bought the ticket, you're on the ride. If for some reason, any of this is objectionable to you, the show's probably not for you. So it, it works in that, in that way, but it was definitely like an, an eye opening thing. It's like, okay, I guess this is what the, what show Jerome has given me to watch. I know what to expect now. I can only imagine what you were thinking in this moment. <laughs> I was, uh, I, I was ready for it. I, I liked Hank Azaria. I, I just love the Brock Meyer voice that he uses. It's it, something about it is very pleasing. It's uh it's, it, it's, it's kind of a mix of the, of a Midwestern, uh, voice with with just a hint of northeast involved. It's 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 a great voice. I did Hank Azaria do the Vince Scully impressions on The Simpsons? Probably, I but I was going to ask you, you know, because this at this time it frames him as, as a Kansas City announcer and as someone from the Midwest. Is this kind of is there an authenticity to his voice that you find, or do you find it to be just a little off? I mean, I think f- they're just kind of going. The fact that he's in Kansas City. I think they're kind of going for this again, this Midwestern, like real America, like the heart of the Midwest baseball, like that's what they're going for. It's not really realistic to who the Kansas City Royals are necessarily, but I the vibe that they're going for, I definitely appreciated because I think part of the part of what they're going for is that yes, Brock Meyer is a successful announcer because he was with the Kansas City baseball team, but he did not have the success of Joe Buck, who they reference and is actually in the show a little bit later on. So there is kind of a, yes, he is a successful announcer, but he's also not necessarily with like a bigger team like the Yankees or the Cubs or something like that. Okay, I just I I don't have that sensibility of knowing how authentic it was. It was just a very enjoyable voice for that character and someone and that voice, I think, lends itself to like, oh, yes, I can see why he became a a television broadcaster. I think this is so part of what makes the show so interesting to me is that there are times when they will get like very specific details right. So and and I'll get to this in a second. So Brotmeyer ends up in Morristown, Pennsylvania. Just the shittiest of the shitty small towns. And he meets Jules, who is this very enthusiastic person, this very entrepreneurial thinker. And uh, she wants him to be the quote unquote radio announcer, even though he's basically a bona fide PA announcer who's just calling the game for the 12 or 13 fans who happen uh, to be there. They eventually go to her the bar that she owns and she talks about her love of baseball. And I think part of so part of what you get sometimes with uh, with women who are sports fans is that they will often have to justify why they are sports fans because 
I don't know if you know this, Kevin. Um, people are sexist, and they often don't believe women when they say they're sports fans. I don't know if this uh, this seems possible to you in twenty twenty one. I'm I'm so glad I'm sitting down because I got I got dizzy thinking about this. You mean you mean male fans t- tend to gatekeep against women and don't buy them as real fans of sports? I can't I can't believe it. I, and I'm sure I'm sure that that's not why the show did it because. The one thing I will say, I, I do appreciate the way that it treats Jules and the way that it treats uh, Lucy, who is uh, Brock Meyer's ex-wife. So Jules talks about attending Willie Stargell's last game. Willie Stargell was a member of the Pittsburgh Pirates, Hall of Famer, one of their best players ever. And she gets into a specific detail and says that she that the last hit that Willie Stargell had was a hit on the infield. And Kevin, what you notice, I actually looked this up on YouTube. It is true. Willie Stargell's last hit was an infield single. So they will get that kind of detail right. But then the show will get into some of the absurdities of of baseball. And like there is a there is a point when there are a series of of let's just say festively plump individuals who step up to the plate and get hit by the baseball and they load up the bases because they're literally just giant men who who literally lean into the strike zone. Um, so it's fascinating to me that the show both has a clear understanding of baseball, but then they are able to kind of subvert that by just doing whatever will get laughs. <laughs> and when, hey, and it, and it succeeds in that part. But I do think there there is something to like using reality based facts to more ground the show and make it feel more fully formed or fully fleshed out. But also like Morristown, Pennsylvania doesn't exist. There's a Norristown, Pennsylvania. There's a Morrisville, Pennsylvania. And there is a Morristown, New Jersey. So it is interesting that we're using like real facts about baseball in a fake town with I I presumably is a fake team. Um yeah, so so it is interesting how like those they make those deliberate choices on what is and was not not based on reality. So I think one of the things that I find to be really fascinating about the first episode is there's very clearly chemistry between Amanda Pete and and Hank Azaria. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about this show is that 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 these two people very clearly have something together. And one of the things that I think a lot of people were wondering is like, well, how long is it going to take for them to get together? It takes all of about 25 minutes because by the second episode, Brockmeyer and Jules, uh, they, they first have a one night stand. And then because the team was on a losing streak, but then they have sex and the team wins the second episode is about the superstitions of baseball. So one of the things that they end up doing is they end up having sex literally every night and every day so that the team keeps winning. And it leads to a couple of very hilarious moments. One of those moments is they, they, they did not have sex between two games and they have to scramble to finish before the national anthem gets done. So you get a, a, a pretty awkward moment with someone singing the national anthem while Brockmeyer and Jules are um, making coitus. And then at one point they agree to stop having sex and then the next day the Frackers lose 18 to nothing. And how is that still not the most awkward moment involving sex with someone singing during the entire series or season even? I mean, this show finds a way, let me tell you. Well, and and going back to Jules and and, um, 
and Brockmire getting together. That's one of the things I love too. That subverted expectations because it was like, okay, they could have done a will they won't they thing for the entire season and then some, and they didn't. They have sex in season two, I, and then I thought it was going to be a really fun twist that while they don't, while Jules may not have feelings for Brockmire, maybe vice versa, because of superstition in sports, they have to continue having sex. But no, then they actually put him in a re- like a committed relationship and they actually like each other. And you're like, well, I'll be damned. Like we didn't have to go the usual route with this relationship. And like they don't make it awkward at work or anything. So like all those usual sitcom tropes that they could have easily taken and would have been accepted, thrown out the window for something much more interesting. And I really appreciated that. And it makes them both, I think, better characters. And it gets us to a lot of better humor and a lot more interesting stories than having to really fixate on that part of the Jules and Brockmire relationship. So all of that is very much appreciated as a viewer who is, we've seen, you know, those stories are tried and true, but we've seen them a bunch of times. And I'm glad that this show decided to do something different. And even at the end of episode two, Brockmire is very honest about his feelings. And uh, there's a really great quote. There's some really, some very well-written lines that are made even better by Hank Azaria's delivery. He says this line, baseball makes me want to exist you make me want to live for a show that is as funny and literally like two scenes earlier, Brotmeyer is just willingly doing cocaine with Uribe after a game. They can still <laughs> have this moment too. Uribe. I, I don't know what we would talk about him in general, but what a great character he is. I mean, you mentioned him, go ahead and talk about Pedro Uribe. I don't know. He's just, he's just this very funny, like, interesting character and like i guess like the other thing that's so interesting about this show is like you have him doing coke you have brockmeyer drinking on the job you have jules also owning a bar and and like uh she also like they both refer to each other as functional alcoholics but there's no situation in the show where like they're trying to fix each other or let's clean up or let's get sober at least not in this season but you'd feel like in a relationship like like that or something there'd be a story about trying to fix one another's habits or something. And it's like, nope, we have these and we just live with them, which is another just interesting choice, but it makes, it adds to the humor of the situation. Um, and it's something else that like, you just don't really deal with. It's just like, yep, we're, we're functional alcoholics and uh, drug users. And that's just how it is. I mean, and they, and they don't kink shame either because it's made very clear when Lucy get comes into the picture that, the issue with her is that she didn't tell Brockmire what she did. The issue is not that she likes to be a domineering sexual personality or that she likes to participate in orgies. That's also something that I really liked is that they make it clear that Brockmire was just as wrong for saying what Lucy was doing as much as what Lucy did to Brockmire. That's right. something that I also appreciated. Like the fact that she did not consent to, to like, he publicly outed her as this. And, and that has also made clear that it's wrong. And that's something that I think a lot of other shows would either stay away from, or they would shame her for doing so, but they don't. And I really like that. Right. That like the issue is that she cheated on him and in some ways embarrassed him in a very public manner, not her, not her sexual proclivities. And even uh, later you have him, you see him at the time where he becomes a one man booth is because there's controversy with his broadcast partner, having photos of himself dressed as a woman, having sex with his wife dressed as a man. And then 
Later, when they come together again, Brockmire apologizes for judging and talks about how much he's grown and stuff. And yeah, it's a, a little bit of an awkward way. But even he he admits like, oh, yeah, I should have been more accepting of that at that time, as should the world. And so, again, just he could. Th- the great thing about that is like Brockmire, because he's kind of someone plucked from the recent past into this present situation, he could be a stubborn fuddy-duddy or, or stuck in his ways and line of thinking. And there's some things with that technologically wise that he is, but in terms of be having progressive viewpoints on sexuality and stuff, he gets caught up and it's like, oh, you can have it both ways. You can have this character be sort of stuck in the past in certain ways and not in the other. And it doesn't feel strange or like dichotomous at all. It really works. So kudos to them for, for getting this well-rounded character in Brockmire. So I wanted to go back to episode two because this is where we where we meet Gary, and we could talk about Gary for just a couple minutes here. Uh, Gary works for Pennsylvania Gas and Oil. It's very clear that he has a thing for jewels, but he also wants to uh, destroy the town of Morristown by by incorporating even more fracking. And I don't know. I was definitely getting some uh, some some Breaking Bad vibes, and you know which character I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. And yeah, and, and that's sort of the, the hook of the whole season is you get at the end of season two is that you got this guy who's going to try to de- demolish the the base. You want, he's trying to make it so the baseball team goes bankrupt so you can demolish the stadium with to, so they can frack. Uh, and you're like, OK, well, there's there's another interesting wrinkle. So you don't have to depend on Brock Meyer or what he's doing necessarily. Now you have this whole storyline to kind of carry throughout the the rest of the show, too. So I really liked episode three. I think this is where I think this is where the show just really becomes more of an ensemble and just it makes it clear that it's not just going to be about Brock Meyer and Jules because they incorporate Uribe, they incorporate Charles a lot more in this episode. They even incorporate the pitcher Yoshi. And episode three, I think it's not quite a bottle episode, but there are definitely some feelings that I have that it is kind of a bottle episode because most of it does take place in the locker room. And I just, I really loved so many moments. You have the situation you mentioned earlier with Brock Meyer's former broadcast partner, Robbie Butler getting into some trouble and Robbie Butler at one point says the real you is too ugly to hide forever. And I think that's a really fascinating line that uh, put a pin in that because it's something that we're going to talk about in every season. I want to come back to this um, and discuss it because I think talking about Brockmeyer as a character is is going to be really important. But the crux of this episode is that it is the first kangaroo court of the year. Kevin, you, based on this episode, what was your knowledge of kangaroo courts before and what was – did you feel like you had an understanding by the end of the episode? The only knowledge I had of a kangaroo court before this is there's a really great song called Kangaroo Court. Um, I forget what the name of the band is. Uh, Capital Cities, that's what it is. That's all I knew about what a kangaroo court was. I got the idea by the end of it, but I will say, like, it took them a little while to explain what the issue between um, uh, Yoshi and uh, – Uribe was and I was like what are they talking about like I don't understand this at all and also like where did Yoshi come from because I don't think we had seen him before this episode and so like it took a little bit till they finally got to the um you know the the point of oh he's supposed to what was he supposed to do like purposely get hit by the ball or like okay so like that. 
So this is, uh, so I think this is kind of stupid, but regardless, I'm not going to editorialize. I'm just going to explain straight up. So very often what happens when your star player gets hit and it can be by accident, maybe it's on purpose. It, It depends on the circumstance, but sometimes when a player gets hit, the idea is that you are going to get the other team back by hitting one of their best players. And the idea is that you don't like hit him in the head or something like that, but you will purposely throw the baseball to hit them. Now, what happens when you hit a player is they automatically get to go to first base. And Kevin, you're thinking that sounds really dumb. Kevin, it is. It's really dumb. I, it's, it's one of those unwritten, unwritten rules of baseball that is really dumb. Well, that's why I, I, Charles speaks for me when they're explaining this to him, and he says, baseball is a, really, is a fucked up sport, and I want you to know this. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I, I was wondering how you would react to Charles, because he, for you, Charles is probably the character that you most identify with, because you're not a baseball person. So you coming in as an outsider, when Charles is asking these questions, he is probably thinking the same thing that you are. Very much so. Like, but there, but I mean, this is a lot of things in like wrestling too, where like, if you explain something in wrestling that people do to a normal person, they're like, that is horrible. Why would anyone ever do that? And then you'd same thing with baseball to even a lesser extent than some of the stuff in wrestling. You explain that to someone who doesn't understand baseball and you're just like, well, that's messed up. Why would you do that? Um, so yeah, so like, I, I understand the concept of the kangaroo court, but some of that took me a little bit to kind of, uh, to, to really grasp like the gravity of the situation or why it was a big deal and this. And I, and just, I felt like I was dropped into the situation without much prep and it took me a little while to catch up. I do like the running gag when Yoshi talks about his honor and it's not because he's Japanese, but yes. one time it's because he's a pitcher and the second time because he's a Freemason. Oh my God. That was so funny. <laughs> because again, I think they're subverting kind of the, the racist trope of a Japanese person that very often, oh, they're quiet. Oh, they 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 don't want to be dishonored. But in this case, it's it's neither one of those two things. Yeah, hysterical. And and Yoshi may be as big of a degenerate as the rest of the team. That's that's something else that's some that comes across too. Right, because because you want him to think like, okay, you have this Japanese person who's here, he has like a man like a manager of sorts with him, and he's all dressed in a suit. Everyone else is sort of like grungy and in their outfits and just sort of like these relative like you know rednecks or yokels in this area and here he is looking all professional but nope he fits right in with with his with his own proclivities so there's at one point when they're trying to find a witness for the court and it's i mean there's just there's so much gary is giving away free money which is again something like i feel like we would see on the simpsons uh so they have to find the witness there the witness that they are looking for is uh is the pitching coach and the pitching coach is in women's underwear, never commented upon, reacted to, but never commented upon. Yep, just there to be a, just a funny sight gag. So when they come back, Brockmeyer is explaining Nazi World War II strategy. I want to know if there is a deleted scene where the whole lecture is there, because I think it'd be really funny to have Hank Azaria just pontificating as Brockmeyer on World War II for like 15 minutes. Well, people, people, white men that age certainly do love World War II. I, I, I can't imagine why. Hmm. Uh, so we end the episode with Jewel shotgunning a beer as Lucy comes up. And a lot of episode four is uh, is dealing with some of the fallout between Jim and Lucy. 
Uh, Jim Brockmeyer is had has been away for for ten years. So in order to get a divorce, he had to have him legally declared dead. And I think that's a that's a that's a very fun fact. And uh, there's a lot of dealing with anger uh, in in episode four as uh, as there is a brawl in the field. Brockmeyer stoking the flames and encouraging fans to get angry and fight. And this is also where we we get to learn a little bit more about Morristown as well and just um. Just kind of how how awful they can be. But the thing that I appreciate about this show is I think it can get a little stereotypical about people who live in small towns. But they are they are also willing when when Brock Meyer becomes a hit with the NPR crowd, they're just as willing to make fun of those kinds of hipsters as they are to make fun of these people. So it seems like everybody is fair game. Oh god, it was the best when they had those hipster fans show up to the crowd and intermingling with uh, those people and and Jules exploiting they the, like how how sheepish they can be to exploit them for their money. Um, yeah, everyone's fair game at getting made fun of. I think that's the best case scenario for a show like this to avoid those pitfalls of picking on a certain group or whatever else is. You just make fun of everyone. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's for the best. And yeah, I think episode four is just is really funny because of just Brockmeyer starting to process what he went through and and his own anger. And I think what's so interesting about this show and Barry is that the premise of these shows is that you have two bad people, awful people who are seemingly trying to become better people and the process that's going on, they're going about it in very different ways. And obviously in Barry's case, people are, are getting murdered because of it. But I think the emotional, there is definitely an emotional journey that we're going through with Brockmeyer too. Despite some of the psych gags and some of the humor, there is definitely a beating heart to the show as well. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is Brockmeyer trying to figure out what do I want to be? You know, I think he's at first feels like a failure being back to going from his uh, his high profile gig as a sports announcer to being shamed out of it. And now that he's back, but he's just a PA announcer for a local team and he gets a high off of that. I don't think he realized how much he missed the sport, how much he enjoy he would enjoy doing that. And then how much he would enjoy, I think even some of the fame he gets from some of his videos of when of his past. And at first I think he, he, well, he doesn't like it because he's worried that he's most famous for, one of the most shameful, embarrassing moments of his life, but then he embraces it uh, and and grows his own fame and becomes a draw to the stadium itself. Uh, and and yeah, so there's there's a lot of of learning about who Brock Meyer is and what he wants, both in terms of his professional life, his personal life with Jules is it, it, you know he even admits like he he was happy being single forever or just being you know a, a philanderer so to speak. Um, but he's growing and maturing and a, a lot as the show goes on. So as you said, there's a lot of humor, but there's definitely a lot of heart to Brock Meyer and him kind of rediscovering himself in this new role. So when we talk about when we talked about Breaking Bad, we always talked about the fake commercials. So episode five, we get Jim Brockmeyer in a Filipino soap opera. I, I want your reaction to Brock Meyer in this soap opera because it is it is so funny. I am so curious to know how accurate it is. I, I, I wonder if they had like a Filipino member of the writing staff or if they were watching these soap operas because 
it feels so accurate to what these kinds of soap operas are. Yes, it feels very authentic and it feels like something that Brock Meyer would do in between his time of leaving the country and coming back to the country for his broadcasting gig. Like, how did this guy make money? What did he do? And you would think like, okay, he's got the distinct voice. He's got some personality. It stands to reason he would probably nab some sort of gig like this overseas. So it makes sense to me that would be like a show like this. And the way it played out is very funny. Having a wife who only says, I am your wife is great. Uh, this was a great way to open the show and just kind of like fill in those gaps of like, what was Brock Meyer's life in between his leaving his announcing booth and coming back? And this is a very funny, engaging way to do it. So I, I, I am a huge fan of kind of having fake movies and TV shows and I'm going to sidetrack us for just a second. Kevin, have you heard of this website called Nestflix? Yes, I have. What a website. What a tremendous website. I don't know if this soap opera is on there, but this website, so for those who don't know, it is a Netflix for fake movies and shows from real movies and shows. And it's not that they have the actual footage, but it's just a well-organized website that has all of these fake various shows and movies from, like, uh, from The Simpsons. Like McBain is on there, for example. And it is, uh, it is a great time killer. Yeah, it's amazing. And actually, like I had just learned about Netflix from Patton Oswalt's Twitter a few days before this. So when I saw this, my very first thing was, I wonder if this would be on Netflix. Yes, uh, just uh, really funny stuff. So in episode five, Brockmeyer does not want to be angry. Uh, he's being intentionally boring on commentary. But I found his discussion of wood to be kind of fascinating. I don't know about you. I, I did. I mean, obviously, that's not <laughs> what you go to a baseball game for. But I was like, I could stand to hear some more of this. If only he had another outfit outfit to talk about things that weren't baseball related. Uh, yeah. And so there, so Charles and, and Brock Meyer are looking for ways to um, become, become, you know, more famous and uh, financial opportunities. So Brock Meyer gets into the world of ASMR videos, which I have to say, Kevin, ASMR videos are a really big deal. And I think they become an even more big deal because of the pandemic. But this time I did not know what ASMR was. So I was looking around and I was a bit concerned, but in a lot of cases, not as perverted as you might think. No. And I would, I would a hundred percent have not known what ASMR was in 2017 when this first aired, but like by like 2019, I feel like ASMR stuff was really becoming big in terms of like relax, relaxing stress reduction, uh, help, help with sleep stuff. And then it got more into like lo-fi music even being that that part of thing. But yeah, this is really ahead of its time in terms of jokes. But in terms of like the ASMR videos and and like uh, Brockmire stuff being uploaded to YouTube and then eventually doing the the podcast, a lot of the shows we we will see a lot of them to avoid stuff that could easily be avoided by like, oh, if you had a smartphone, this would never happen. Or like if this or that, a lot of the shows just go back to a time where almost like technology is as advanced as they want it to be so that certain plot points can still happen. Like, for example, Breaking Bad takes place in the early 2000s. So there's still cell phones and like um, Walter Jr. can start like uh, a fundraising website for his dad when he has cancer. But it's not in the day and age where YouTube is so prevalent or you have smartphones and things like that. But what I really like about Brockmire is that it does take place in modern times and stuff like this is used by Brock Meyer and uh, 
uh, and Charles to their advantage. So they're embracing the technology for Brockmire to find a new audience and embrace his meme ability and his viral videoness uh, in a way to that that a lot of shows purposely try to avoid by going to a time further back where this stuff didn't exist. So I, and and because of the nature of it being in a baseball stadium with an announcer and stuff, they could have very easily put it in in a in a different time period and gotten rid of all this stuff, but they didn't, and I'm very glad that they uh, did not do that. So a couple of episodes earlier, there was a throwaway gag from Charles as Charles announced that Taylor Swift and Drake were dating, and it pays off in episode five. Brockmire does a network interview to tell his side of the story, but then the interview gets delayed for a Drake Taylor Swift sex tape story that is oh what a payoff like even i i forgotten that this was the payoff and i was laughing even then watching this a second time just because it was great uh but then they they think about charles has this idea podcasts it's like the radio but it's not on the radio <laughs> yep that's exactly what it is and yeah and for and it also reminded me of the simpsons where it was like you know, when the kids news episode where Lisa and Bart finally are like, we're going to make a great team. And they're like, kids news will not be presented tonight. Instead, it, I got the same vibes off that when uh, Brock Myers interview was was canceled. Uh, we got the real Ira Glass endorsing the podcast as well. Um, but the episode ends with Jules saying that she is pregnant and Brock Meyer physically rejects this by vomiting all over the place. What a great ending to that episode. <laughs> and I feel like that's that's honestly not too, like, uh, uh, surreal of a reaction. First of all, he was probably drunk uh, or had been drinking. And two, that probably, like, well, probably yeah, I, it, it would be weirder if he wasn't. But <laughs> and that's also probably just a, such a major shock to his system that he wasn't expecting that his body rejecting that news uh, also would not be too surprising. So. When we talk about episode six, I feel like we have to address this with a, a certain amount of sensitivity because of the subject matter. This this is an episode that that is about abortion. And here's the thing. I, abortion is not funny, but this show somehow manages to make the idea of an abortion funny in some ways. And I I can definitely see some viewers being turned off by this episode because of the fact that they are going to this place. But the way just the performances from Amanda Pete and Hank Azaria, and especially the doctor, the doctor in this episode might be my favorite guest performance of the season. So I think like this, this episode handles abortion the right way. It doesn't treat it as anything that is, it's 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 a very serious subject. It's not something that either Jules or Brockmire take lightly. Brockmire is supportive in both ways, with whatever way she wants to take, although he obviously has a slant towards one decision, but still is supportive. They go to other people for advice. Brockmire like confronts his own problems with his dad to see if that's something that he can do or wants to do. Um, and then they have the the stuff with the doctors and no, abortion is not funny. But Brockmire snorting abortion pills, thinking that it is crushed, thinking that it is um, cocaine, is objectively funny. I mean, I, I I love the fact that they both come to this decision independently, and they they get advice and they go around and they both come to this decision that having a child is not the right choice for them at this point in their lives. And I think that is a very mature 
decision, and it's one that I think movies and TV shows should represent more. And that's not to say that everybody, everybody there, there are some people in this world that, that should and need to have kids because we need to keep the population growing, but I think there are a lot of cases where people just shouldn't have kids, and maybe I'm biased because I am definitely a member of that latter group, but I just think that the way that this episode handles it is is really well done, and certainly I'm sure that there are people who might disagree or who think that it's impossible for this to be funny, and, and I would understand that. Like, I would totally understand somebody who finds the idea of Brotmeyer snorting an abortion pill to be so repulsive, but... If you've made it to episode six, I also feel like you kind of know what you're getting yourself into at this point, too. Yes, I I definitely agree with that. And and like, you know, it's again like they could have just been like, well, we're not going to touch that. That's too it's too taboo. But I think they take a taboo and they make it their own. And I think that's I find it to be commendable. I totally understand if that's something, especially if you've had a personal experience that that subject is. um is very off-putting to you for one reason or another. I totally understand. But as someone who that isn't the case, I think Brockmeyer made it their own and they didn't make it too explicit or harsh. And I think they treated it with the gravitas that it should be treated with while also adding their, their own sensibilities and humor into it as well. I also love the running gag about Jules having a lot of difficulty swallowing pills. <laughs> yes. Like, in her case, it would have just almost been easier if they did a surgical procedure because her body is, like, rejecting pills, mm. which is amazing given the amount of given the amount of drugs that she takes. It's, it's so funny to me that she just, like, physically cannot do it. And I do love that the doctor is, like, not stupid enough by the end to be like, oh, I'll give you another pill, but you are taking it in this office right now. <laughs> yes. The doctor is the straight man. Uh, just so funny. Uh, so the end. <laughs> like he's like, you know, I, I, I he's like, you know, I come up in off hours for something so serious, and then I, you could tell like the unspoken thing is like, and also I really don't think you should have a baby, so I'm here. <laughs> yes, in in all honesty and all seriousness, normally I wouldn't stay this late, but you really, really should have a child <laughs> for for the betterment of the world at large. I'm here. Uh, so we, at the end of the episode, Robbie Butler, Brock Myers' former broadcast colleague, mentions Joe Buck. It gets punched in the face <laughs> after this this very kind of heartwarming, very good relationship episode. Brotmeyer just ends up getting really violent again. Well, and that's the other thing. It's I like kind of expected like Robbie Butler to come back and be mad at him or motherfuck him or stuff. And no, not at all. Like he's there to me- <laughs> he mentioned someone else. And the poor guy gets pummeled by Brockmeyer. And again, all these little all these little twists are 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 really well done. What coming into this, I I was very curious, Kevin, how you were going to react to episode seven because there is pun not intended a lot of inside baseball, announcery kind of stuff. The Mac and McGraw dinner, which is not a real dinner by the way, um, we open with Brockmeyer speaking in two thousand and four. Uh, he runs into Joe Buck. Joe Buck is a real announcer for Fox. He does a lot of NFL games. Uh, he does a lot of Major League Baseball games. He's basically, if you were to tier the sports announcers, Joe Buck would probably be at the top of the list. Like, number one, maybe number two. But he's definitely somebody that has has made a, a longstanding career. Here's basically, he's been calling baseball 
for for over 25 years at this point. He's been calling football for just as long. He is in his 50s, and he's already going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That is that is how long he has been around. So what's fascinating to me is that Joe Buck just does this like TV show that's being watched by like 300,000 people. So so Kevin, what was your reaction? to this episode overall before we get into some of the nitty gritty. Well, this is one of my favorite episodes of the season. I didn't know any of these people. I didn't even know they were real people. I thought it could have been all made up people who were played by actors for all I knew. But I think the idea of like putting Brockmire back in this universe of like this boys club and seeing how he's accepted there um, and how it's still like it doesn't change his viewpoint of those folks or even his relationship with Jules doesn't change kind of confronting his past. But what it does is make him realize that while he has the respect of his colleagues, a lot of things they like to do is kind of laugh at him for some of his absurd calls and other things. And he realizes like, oh, this Internet audience that kind of laughs at or with me isn't so different from my colleagues. And you could see it as like maybe this moment of growth or just this moment of realization or do I embrace this? Do I change? And uh, Brock Meyer still goes ahead with his uh, his plans. But that plus the Charles subplot, which got to a very weird, surreal place by the end, made this definitely one of the most memorable episodes of the of the season and one of my favorites. It's fascinating. So so Joe Buck, I think Joe Buck is actually good in this episode. And Joe Buck is going to return in subsequent seasons. And I don't think that's too much of a spoiler, but you will see Joe Buck again. I think Joe Buck is actually good. And it's funny because there are a lot of other actual announcers, including Brian Kenny, who has a conversation with Jules and says he's a happily married man, which I think is a pretty funny line. Uh, Tim Kirchin, who works for ESPN. And um, there's also one other person, Jonah Carey, little problematic uh, in 2019, Jonah Carey was arrested for, for domestic abuse against both his wife and his children. So that's that's a bit awkward. But thankfully, he does not play a, a big role in this. But uh, but yeah, Joe Buck is uh, is very good. I love at the beginning um, when he talks about like he could just manifest things and then a drink literally appears in front of him <laughs> one second later. And it's just... It's played so perfectly. And Joe Buck's not a professional actor, but the way that he plays that off, the, the timing of that is perfect. I could have bought it. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's really good. I, I do like the roasting. And even the roasting doesn't – like, I thought they were going to be much more cruel to Brock Meyer. It's actually a lot more subtle than I was expecting in such a way that, that I think it works out for the better. And, yeah, I mean, Brock Meyer is starting to kind of have this realization about the type of person he is. And uh, yes, the uh, the Charles subplot is tremendous. Jules tells Charles the only thing he can't allow to happen is burn the place down. And what happens, Kevin, at the end of the episode, the outfield is literally burning because Gary and the oil company are burning it down. So that's when I was like, am I watching an episode of Atlanta? Because here's Charles with this girl that he uh, basically catfished on Tinder. Uh, she They're up in the uh, press box. We don't see it, but they apparently had sex. And then Charles convinces her to give him a hand job. And he's looking out onto the field because he's not supposed to look at her as she's singing a song. And all he could see on the field is someone in a ski mask lighting the field on fire. And I'm like, this is the most surreal thing I've seen in this show, like by leaps and bounds. And it felt like, again, like an episode of Atlanta where like they like it's a very reality based show in some ways. And they do a weird thing like the invisible car. And you're like, what? 
Uh, and that's that's how this kind of came off to me. So, yeah, that was that was incredible. And I thought Charles did an amazing job, even like putting the beer in the giant ranch containers and pretending to be the Drake of Morristown, Pennsylvania. Like, what does that even mean? Uh, this this really endeared me to Charles, this whole episode, his his side plot. And I liked him already, but even more so here. So episode eight is the big finale, and throughout, Brockmeyer is wrestling with a decision of whether to go work for the New Orleans Triple Affiliate, AAA. The New Orleans team is the AAA affiliate of the Atlanta Braves. Uh, the Joe Buck apparently has has worked his magic, so this can happen. So this is kind of what Brockmeyer has struggled with. Brockmeyer has made it clear how much he loves jewels and is passionate about the relationship, but he does not like Morristown and he wants to get back into major league baseball. So that is kind of the struggle uh, that, that, that is happening throughout this episode. But what this episode really crystallizes is that this is kind of an underdog sports movie all along in that, yes, there, there's some funniness, some funny moments, but in the end, like this is an underdog story. Morristown is an underdog city the, the, the field is still literally on fire a week later. We get Jules in a, a hilarious scene with Gary um, as she is apparently trying to record him admitting his crime. He's smart enough to not do that. But then she is throwing balloons. Of, they, do they, they never say what the liquid is, but she is throwing liquid b- water balloons at him. And it's a, it's a very funny moment. The It's intimated that whatever liquid is in the water balloons came from like the like it, it's like leaky pipes and like the bathrooms or something. So you feel like it's either like piss water or like sewage water, something along those lines. And it's uh, very disgusting. So what Jules tells everyone is that they have to sell a week's worth of concessions during the last game. So Brotmeyer declares a stadium wide drinking contest, literally before the game, he has all kinds of beer. He has like, a dozen cans sitting in front of him ready to drink. And for every time an inning ends, every time there's a strikeout, every time there's a run, every time somebody else is drinking, basically this is going to be the drunkest game of the year. And they, they do such a good job, Kevin. They don't even have to wait until the end of the game. It takes just seven innings for them to make enough money to pay off, uh, Jules's loan. And, uh, Brotmeyer just talking about drinking beers the whole time. It is uh, it is a delight. He's a good salesman, and the people of the town are degenerates. A great combo to sell a ton of beer and make your money in seven innings. I I also like that Jules are selling twenty two beers for the price of twenty one. <laughs> what a deal! I mean, how could you turn that down? Can't at that point just buy a keg. <laughs> they that I mean. That's that's what they might as well have done. So in order to save the town, they both have to sell the beer. But also the frackers need to finish above 500 uh, for them to to stay. And uh, Brockmeyer goes onto the field. And I have to say, there are times when I will watch actors play drunk and it will come off really poorly. Hank Azaria is very good at playing a drunk. Like just the way that there's just enough like lucidness to him because he's still Brockmire, but also a, that that hint of drunkenness that you need. Well, and the great thing about hit the way he acts about being drunk here is the character of Brockmire drinks hard liquor all day, every day, and comes off totally fine like a sober person would. 
how much did that man drink in seven innings to be as drunk as he is as a professional alcoholic? Like that's that show that's a great it's a great little like acting thing in the way they portray him to show just how much alcohol that man had to drink during this broadcast to get as drunk as he did. It's uh oh man, it's just it's so it's so great. And the Frackers, it is a triple play. They get a triple play to end the game to win the game one to nothing. But I also love that the one run that they score. So basically, Brotmeyer, they found somebody who is literally the living embodiment of the squeaky voice teen. And they they even paid that off because Brotmeyer was making fun of him throughout the season. And then in the end, he hits the game-winning home run and flips off Brotmeyer. What a, what a <laughs> great moment. Like, just this, this season functions as a great, even if there was no other seasons and you just ended it with them celebrating on the field, this would have worked out as a great underdog sports movie. A hundred percent. Yeah, it was you're, you're rooting for the team and getting everything together. And it's uh, it's very satisfying when they when they make the money and can pay off the loan. But of course, we have to we have to end things on kind of a down note as Brotmeyer tells Jules that he is leaving for New Orleans. And Jules talks about not leaving and abandoning Morristown. And because that's what everybody else does, he tells Brotmeyer to go fuck himself, that he is dead to her. And the the dialogue where she says to him that he was going to come back a year from now and and have regrets like that's definitely something that stuck with me. And uh, we may even revisit that conversation uh, in a future episode of this podcast. There is also great when she's kicking him out. He's like, get out. And he was like, OK, but can I get my bag? Get out. And he closes the door. He comes back. OK, but seriously, can, can I get my bag? And she kicks him out again. Like no, but seriously, I need that bag, and he still he just he doesn't get it. Some of that killed me, but yeah, and there's there's complexity to it because Brock Myers finding his success, he has a real chance to get back to who he is, but now he has this relationship to balance. But is he still even if things are going great with Jules, is he still reticent to get back into a relationship like that because of how his marriage went, or just how he is and how he feels about his own self and insecurities? And I'm really interested to see how that plays out. And again, like. Again, I think everybody's sort of expecting like, oh, yeah, like, of course, he's just going to come back and then get back together. So the fact that she even addressed that is very interesting to me. Um, and I and I like that because you don't get shows that do that, that address right up front. Like, yeah, you're going to come back and want to get back together. It's not going to work. So there's, I have a great appreciation for some of that stuff that they put out in the front there. So I, I think it's actually funnier that Brockmeyer leaves with Charles and he still doesn't have his luggage. Like, he doesn't throw it out the window or anything. He just, he literally leaves with Charles and they go to New Orleans without him having grabbed all of his luggage. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so that is, uh, that's where we end things, where where Brockmeyer and Charles are going to New Orleans together. And uh, that is where we are going to pick up season two as we will talk about Brockmeyer's time down in New Orleans. Ooh, okay. That should be fun. So, uh, Kevin, uh, any 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 final thoughts on the season? I think the only thing I wanted to go back to that you mentioned with um, the presentation in season seven with Brock Myers' career achievements and them honoring him, I'm glad that didn't take the twist of it being like, this is going to be a gotcha and we're going to confront you here and tell you what a piece of shit you are. It all feels like a very genuine, heartfelt, like we're happy to have you back and have you in our lives. It's just... By the nature of things, Brockmeyer feels down himself. It's not something that they do. And again, that's something that I almost was expecting it to be sort of like a gotcha for Brockmeyer. It didn't turn out the way. So 
again, I, I, I appreciate so many of these things that like I don't see coming where I feel like they could take this easy, easy way out or follow your tropes. And they don't do that at all. It's funny throughout. It's so easy to watch. All these characters are top notch. The story's really compelling. This is just such a really enjoyable show. I, just after one season, I give it a, a recommendation. I'm really excited to jump into season two uh, next month and talk about that because at, at like eight minutes at 22 episodes with or 22 minutes a piece like that is such a breath of fresh air from a lot of these shows that we've been going into with like really nuanced storylines that are an hour long and stuff. This has been a really nice mental break from some of the stuff we've been watching, too. So good recommendation so far. We'll see if that changes going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the first season is is my favorite. So, I, and I don't necessarily want to color your viewpoints on the rest of the seasons, but I think each season is very much its own thing, and the tone can sometimes shift a little bit depending on the episode, depending on the season. I think this is the funniest season of the entire show, so I will be very curious to know what you think. It's just it's it becomes a very different animal as we go along. I really love the fact that we get this entire relationship between Jules. I think the chemistry between Amanda Peet and Hank Azaria, again, that is to me one of the clear highlights of the show. And I love the guest appearances and and the little the the flavor of the different people from the town. I love the Uribe character. I love that, you know, Jill Buck is on the show. And he's really entertaining, and Charles is really good. So there's there's a lot to this. And Kevin, how can we forget about Boz? We didn't mention Boz. We didn't mention either of the Halt and Catch Fire connections in this season. So Kevin, go for it. I will, I will let you uh, handle this one. So Bosworth plays. Uh, I forget what his name is, but he's just like a, a barfly. Who's Johnny who's, the Johnny the Hat? Johnny, Johnny the, hat, the Hat. Yeah, because he's uh, he's wearing a hat. And he's at the bar for a few episodes and he's uh, um, just interjecting some funny things and he's monologuing at one point like Brockmire does. And they're like, no, that's my thing. So he was just like a fun background character that pops up now and again. And then, oh, you're going to have to remind me of her Halt and Catch Fire character name I had a little bit ago. But she plays a bartender at a different bar that Amanda Pete uh, Jules goes to to ask for advice because she had an abortion. And I was like, I know this character. And I looked up the actress and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's. So-and-so in Halt and Catch Fire, who was one of the people in the tech group that uh, hired Cameron to work on their game. Uh, so her real name is uh, is Molly Ephraim. That is her real name. Yes. Uh, and she was indeed on both Brockmire and Halt and Catch Fire. She was, in some good, she was in some really good stuff, too. Like other shows, I was like, oh, she was in this? Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, including, uh, well, maybe not Last Man Standing, but uh, <laughs> Perry Mason. She's in Perry Mason, Modern Family, things like that. So I'm I'm looking through my text to see if I can find what her uh, what her character name. Well, was. while you do that, I will just uh, do some house cleaning. So again, make sure that you go and leave a five star review to uh, promote uh, what we do here on the Real World. Uh, make sure that you go ahead and read what I do for the Real World, exploring digital purgatory, where I am writing about various uh, TV shows and movies. Uh, make sure you go and listen to Flooping the Pig and go into the into the archives and listen to from broadcast depth. Uh, so make sure you go ahead and do all that. So that is the plugs, Kevin. Uh, did you did I stall and give you enough time to find the name? You did. Alexa Vaughn was the character name in Halt and Catch Fire that she played. All these years, I finally did it, Kevin. I know podcasting. Mm, 
Uh, maybe not. And we're finally podcasting about a show that has a podcast in it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we are going through the looking glass. <laughs> it, it, is, it is remarkable it took us this long, to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of the shows that we've been doing have been like period shows. Like even Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul are technically period shows. I'm thinking about a Saul Goodman podcast right now and how great that would be. It's all good, man. Also, uh, Bob Unkirk. Um, now, we did not mention this on the Simpsons episode because that was banked before uh, the medical incident that Bob Odenkirk had. But let me tell you, there was uh, there was definitely some concern on my part that Bob Odenkirk was not going to be with us. And uh, I would have I, I would have definitely needed a day or two for that to recover. I would have been devastated. Um, if Bob Odenkirk left us, he's such a, you know, regardless of what, how much we love Breaking Bad and the stuff that he's done here, he's someone I've been a fan of for long before I was a fan of that. He seems just like a very, uh, a very caring person, a very giving person, somebody who made his own success in comedy and then used that success to aid other people in finding success. And how could you not like a person like that? Um, Obviously, even more important than that, uh, a, a loving husband, a father uh, would have been devastating to obviously his family, his colleagues and friends if he had left us. But fortunately, uh, Bob Odenkirk kicked out, as we like to say, and uh, I just hope he's doing well. And it seems like he's doing great right now. It, and reading actually read a, a little bit of a, an interview with uh, with Lalo from uh, Better Call Saul about working with him because he was there when he collapsed on set. And he said, it sounds like Bob's right. Bob is ready to go, but he's waiting for his doctors to clear him. And then even even when the doctors clear him, his wife needs to clear him and give him permission to go back to work. So just just waiting for that till they get back to finishing up uh, Better Call Saul. But he also talked about them filming scenes without Bob right now. And I have to say that knowing Bob as well, I can say that uh, I'm very intrigued what those scenes look like without Saul Goodman in them. What what is that? What does that look like? Yeah, we will probably be able to talk about Better Call Saul hopefully sometime in 2022, and hopefully we'll have Barry season three, and uh, we'll see what else, we'll see what else trouble we can get into. Uh, but for right now, we want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, we will be back next month to talk about Brockmire season two. Thanks again. You know, I'm sure there was times where Charles found it very frustrating to be podcasting with Brock Meyer, but at least he never had to podcast with you.